Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Breakfast is sponsored by the Aini family for the Rufuash Nema of Adele, but Matilda Kohab and Yosef Ben Esther. And as well, uh, in the merit of this tzedakah, that Sarah Simcha Bat Sophia should be mitkarevet to her proper shiduch today, and all the singles as well uh, should be zochet to find their, uh, their shiduch. Of course, in addition, we are uh, praying, and it is our sincere wish that this should be as a ozer umoshia umagen, a protection for those people, for everyone who hasn't uh, caught this uh, uh, accursed virus yet, uh, for the people that have it to have refuah and be'ezrat Hashem, we should be zocheh to get past this in health and happiness. Uh, Rabotai, the overwhelming theme, if you will, if you're looking at the Megillah, the overwhelming theme that one notices of in fact, the words itself, Megillat Esther, signify this idea as well. Megillah means to reveal. Esther means uh, that which is hidden. In fact, the Gemara even asks, Esther mena Torah minayin. Where do you see, not Fred Esther, where do you see Esther mena Torah minayin? Uh, Esther Malka, where do you see her? And on that day, I will... On that day, I will hide, I will surely hide my face. So this double covering, if you will, of God, uh, and the uncovering of the double covering, the revealing of Hashem in our daily lives, that's undoubtedly the overwhelming message of the Megillah. However, there are many other elements there as well, and they are maybe peripherally linked to the concept of Hashkacha Piratit. And that is uh, the concept I'd like to speak today about the concept of Misirut uh, Nefesh. You know, we talked a little bit about this idea on Shabbat. The fact that Esther had no reason really to go to Achashverosh and Mordechai was pushing it so much, it really makes one wonder why exactly it was so important for her to risk her life and go see the king at that point in time. There was plenty of time until the Gezerah came about. And one of the answers is that the war that was being fought here was a war against Amalek, and that is the war of Safek. Amalek themselves were a people that were trying to inspire doubt in the Jewish people, in the Jewish mission. In fact, even when everything was so clear for everyone to see, and the Jews had just left Egypt, still Amalek came and attacked them at that high, and took away from them perhaps their emunah. It made their emunah waver. Someone could start up with me, really, maybe I'm vulnerable. What Mordechai understood was that sometimes when a person has a safik, what's necessary is an act of misirut nefesh, where they're going above and beyond and almost risking their life, risking uh, a loss in order to be able to, to what's it called, to illustrate that, you've, uh, that, you've, that you have this belief system. So I want to talk a little bit about this idea of misirut nefesh with you today. Moshe, um, Mordechai is a leader of the Jewish people. In fact, uh, he uh, he's someone that ultimately is connected with the uh, uh, the Anshekness, Tagdola, etc., etc., and and the remnants of the Sanhedrin. Now, what's so interesting to me about Mordechai is that he stands alone. Now, there's a law in the Torah. I don't know if people are aware of this law. It's called Zaken Mamre. Does anyone know what that law is? Zaken Mamre. The halakha tells us that in the time of the Sanhedrin, if you have one sage who's disagreeing with all the other sages, so all the sages are saying this is the halakha, this is what we're teaching the Jewish people, and one sage stands up 
he disagrees and he's posek halakha that the people should follow him in a different way. The, the Pasuk says that Zaken Mamre has a death penalty. Powerful. Why? Now, this halakha doesn't apply today. You have this rabbi arguing with this rabbi all the time. It seems in every halakha, the only sure thing is that there's going to be a machloket. The idea is not that machloket is punished, is punishable by death, but rather that when it comes not to a, a ruling about something in a, a, a theoretical level, but in a practical level, we cannot have that the Sanhedrin that's guiding the Jewish people should be fractured. They're allowed to have different opinions. But at the end of the day, there's a mechanism by which we understand that the Sanhedrin is then posek uh, So they check who is the majority. Once there's a majority amongst these dissenting opinions, that's the halakha. Someone who then goes against that final halakha is zaken mamre. So it's very interesting to find uh, situations where there's a lone voice amongst the chachamim saying something different to everybody else. And yet that was the case with Mordechai. When the Jewish people came to their rabbis, to their leaders, they asked the question whether or not they should go to the Suudat HaChashverosh. On record, we only have in Chazal that Mordechai was the one that told them not to go. We don't find anybody else. It's very lonely being that person, being the person who rules differently to everybody else. Being the person who's going against the conventional wisdom. And what's everybody saying? You can imagine, by the way, if it was during this time, you can imagine how people would be speaking. I was invited to the president's mansion for this party. Are you kidding me? We're not going to go? Then all of a sudden the Jewish people are going to think, we have to go. Halakha mitzvah to go. Dina dimachuta dina. People are going to start pulling out the rules of the kid. They start pulling out all sorts of logic about why they should go. But at the same time, although there were these many dissenting opinions, for Mordechai to stand his ground is an unbelievable thing. So for him, this the truth of what it is uh, that he's, that he's uh, uh, putting out there is stronger than all the other pressures that surround him. Now, Mordechai is, uh, for some interesting reason, Mordechai is given, uh, we, get, we, get, we, uh, we get the lineage of Mordechai in the Megillah. In the Megillah it says, Mordechai ben... Mordechai ben. We have a sofer here. Mordechai ben Yair ben Kish Ishimini. So it's fascinating to understand that this guy, we get a couple of elements of his yichus, but not more. Why are we getting this amount? Why these specific um, forebearers of Mordechai? So we have Yair, ben Shim, uh, ben, and we have Sha'ir, Shim'i, all these different ideas. And I once uh, read a magnificent idea, I think it's said over in the name of Rav Nachman, that what we were communicating with this lineage of Mordechai is that each one of the names, uh, Yair, Shim'i, they illustrate what it was that allowed Mordechai to stand up and do the unpopular thing. Yair means that someone is capable of shining light. Shim'i means that someone is capable of hearing something. That he hears something and he understands that it's truth and he lets that, he's willing and capable of making that shine out to the public. But what's to me so powerful about Mordechai, Rabotai, is if you look at the end, his name itself, Mordechai, it's made up of two parts. Mor, 
which is bitter, and dechai. Where do we have that shoresh? Dalid chaf. Dalid chaf means someone who's depressed, someone who's broken. Lev so you have this guy whose name incorporates a double bitterness. Fascinating. So this is the man that brings out When they see the double bitter man, so to speak, that brings about joy. And the answer is yes, there's a double measure of bitterness sometimes that a person needs to go through in order to be able to express and bring out joy in their world. Sometimes we go through very difficult things and it is imperative that we do so. Mordechai stands alone in the party. Mordechai is sitting in sackcloth and ashes for Esther. Mordechai has to see Esther going and risk her life. And finally at the end, if he saves the Jews, if he does everything, if he's now the most powerful man in the kingdom aside from the king, what does the Torah, what does the end of the Megillah say? And most of the Jews liked him. I need you to hear that. And like most of his brothers, they, they, they liked him. He just saved your life. How could you not like the guy? And the Chazal tell us that even then, at the end of his career, after giving his life, after risking either his wife or his daughter in the story of Esther, whichever opinion you follow who she was to him, what, what do we wind up with? The, the Chachamim explained, Ratzui L'Rov Echav means that the Sanhedrin, the other rabbis, didn't like the fact that he was now not studying in the Bet Midrash, he wasn't learning. He was running around, gallivanting through the halls of the Senate and Congress. But the question is, the question is, my dear friends, you know, ultimately they say, there's a great line that says, history is written by the victors. You know, and there's a double entendre on that. Number one, when you won, you get to tell the story the way you like. But that's not true over here. It's Megillat Esther is Ruach HaKodesh Neimra. Okay? That means that the Torah is telling us is being made. History is one, is recorded by the victors. The victor in this fight, who was right through all this, through all this difficulty, is who? Mordechai. What's interesting is, our Chachamim point out that we know Ish Yemini. Who is he? He's someone from the tribe of? Benjamin. And much of this is actually hidden and communicated in history. The Torah tells us that when Yosef was, saw all of his brothers gathering around uh, at his table and he reveals himself to them, he says, Ani Yosef. They're so embarrassed, they can't believe it. He gathers them in, he brings them together, he throws a party, he gives everyone clothing. And what does he do? He gives to Binyamin five sets of clothing. Ask all the Mefarshim, I don't understand. Did you not suffer enough? Don't you remember how giving somebody extra clothes works? Because of this little amount of milat, of cloth, of wool, right? of fine wool. Because of this little amount, everything happened here. Why are you giving him more? And the Gemara gives many answers. One answer is that the, the you know, one answer Chazal is that the five that he gave Benjamin were the same value as the, the ones that he gave to them, which only begs the question. So, so why change him? Why give him five? Answers the Gemara. Ra- rather, actually, it was a sign, a siman. He was communicating to him that one of his descendants 
in the fullness of time, would get to wear five begadim. Right, so on and so forth. There's five different begadim, articles of clothing that Mordechai wears. He was communicating to him that there would come a time where there'll be five begadim, five elements of clothing. Now, to me, this is a fascinating turn of events. And let me explain why. And let me as well explain why I think this is something which is so relevant to each and every one of us. Our Sifarim tell us that when Mordechai left, when Mordechai, uh, excuse me, when Mordechai was rewarded with these, this whole pasuk of the clothing and the crown, they explain that because he, what's it called, each element of what he got was in to commemorate that which he experienced on the flip side. When Mordechai went out in the streets of the city, he's in sackcloth and ashes, and he calls out, he screams a great scream, say to Sifarim, in merit of the sack that he put on, he, had, he was given all levush malchut, he was given the king, kingly clothing to switch for the sackcloth and ashes. For the ashes that he put on his head, he was given ateret tahav. For the screaming out in the city, what happened? He merited that someone should call out before him in the streets of the city. And for the fact that he walked around the city on his legs, Mordechai is walking in the city, in the streets of the city. They put him on, on, the, on, the, on the horse of the king. And I think there's a tremendous lesson here. What we learned from, from this idea is that when a person goes through these difficult times, it's not just he goes through a difficult time and then he has uh, and then he gets something special, he gets a, a nice prize. But rather, HaKadosh Baruch Hu opens up the Sefer HaZichronot, the book of remembrances. And he goes back on all the mar and all the dehi that the person experienced in his life. And he says, okay, and for the sackcloth, you get this. And for the ashes on the head, here's a crown. And for the walking, here's a horse. And for the screaming, the fact you scream, here you have kachayas down to the fact that he shouted. That's enough for Hashem to remember and pay back. So what we're recognizing over here is that misirut nefesh sometimes is the only way to get things done. You have to stand sometimes alone when it's unpopular. You have to do things that you know in your heart of heart is the correct thing to do. But make no mistake, you don't lose for it. In fact, Borei Olam is writing every nuance of the person's bitterness. And not only that, it's not enough to call him more, right? It's not enough. We need to recognize this bitterness and this downtrodden element, the chi, the depression, and we need to notice this and this and this and this and this. Don't worry, everything's coming to you. From the beginning of time, the five sets of clothing already are hinted by Yosef. Don't worry, we've got you covered. At a certain stage, a person uh, recognizes in, in Shamaim that actually all the challenges and the, the, one, the wonders that he managed even to survive them. You know, we look at them at the end of time and we're able to say, oh my gosh, the Chafetz Chaim says something that is frightening. He tells a story about the advisor of a king who's very close to the king and unfortunately the king needs to go off to war. When the king goes off to war, who steps in and takes over the king in waiting? His brother. This guy anyway has middle child issues. Right, he thinks he was passed over. He's a very uh, negative. So he's fa- he finally has the throne. 
he steps in, and every day, who does he see? Bishar Menu. He sees his brother's advisor. Every time he sees his face, he's reminded of one thing: that he is not the real king. It bothers him tremendously. So every time he would see him, he would order one of the guards to whip him, to hit, you know, put, throw him down on the floor and whip him. First day, the guy's like, "What are you doing? What did I do to you? I didn't do anything." And the king didn't answer because kings don't have to answer. Beating. The guy limps home. The next day, he comes back to work again. He's got to go to work. He's got to support his family. Again, boom. Third day, boom. Fourth day, boom. Fifth day, boom. The guy, he's barely alive. Each time, though, the king tells, sends his doctors to make sure that the guy doesn't die because he knows if he kills the advisor, the king, there's going to be hell to pay. So he sends the royal doctor. The guy patches him up. After a little while, he comes back to Weeks go by, months go by, a year finally. At the end of a year, the king returns from battle victorious. As soon as he walks in, who jumps off the throne? The brother of the king. All of a sudden, as he's sitting there, who knocks on the, on the doors of the throne room? His trusted advisor. And he sees the guy and he's so happy. He says, oh, I can't, can't wait to see you, dog. And the guy's limping, broken, walking up to the... The king runs to him, he gets on his knees and he throws his arms around him. He says, what happened to you? My dear friend, why are you walking like this? You look like you aged 10 years in the year I was gone. And, and he says, you know, life wasn't so great here with your brother on the throne. He says, what do you mean? And the man lifts his shirt and he can see the scars slicing, crisscrossing around his back and his sides, his arms, his neck, his shoulders. And the king weeps bitterly on the neck of this man, of his close advisor and his dear friend. And he calls in the royal treasurer. And he says, for each one, each scar, each mark that's on his body, I want you to give him a million dollars. They pull up his shirt, they turn up the lights, and they start counting one scar over here, two over here, three, four, five, six, seven, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, 40 million, the guy's got already. 50 million, 60 million, they finally hit the guy. 60 million dollars the guy has. And the guy, the royal scribe finishes counting. Hazit, this guy on the floor with all the scars on his back, he has 60 million. He says, you forgot this one. There's one also over here. I didn't show you the one up. And he starts pulling. And finally, each time, okay, no problem, absolutely, 62, 63, 64. 65, 70 he gets to. He goes, is that all? And the guy says to the, to the treasurer, he says, I think that's it, but please look carefully. Maybe there's more. I think there might be a couple more. At that stage, the person is wishing he had more beatings. The Chafetz Chaim says, so too is our experience of Mordechi, Mordechi of bitterness, not in this world, but in the world to come. When Borei Olam counts each one and says, I'm paying you for that Yisuri. You stayed faithful to me in all of this. You went through this. Two days sick in the hospital. Four days quarantine in coronavirus. You know, this thing, you know, how do you call it? You stayed Shabbat. You lost the time from work. Each and every element that was difficult and bitter and hard for a person, Borei Olam will pay, pays back. But Mordechai experiences it. And some of us experience it not only in the next world, but even here, 
where we can see the values uh, that, that we struggled for um, exhibited in our children and, and in our future. And the kids that saw the challenges that, that we went through and stayed true to our uh, thing, even if it was unpopular or very difficult, and that is the ultimate reward when we get to see that the chinuch that we gave to our children in the difficult times, that's the bit that they most remember. Watching my father when it was very difficult and still he went to shul. Watching my father when this, there was a man, unfortunately, who was a quadriplegic, a bal teshubah, who was a quadriplegic. And it came time for Minyan and it was snowing in Jerusalem. And they put him in a wheelchair and they start wheeling him down the street. And unfortunately, it gets very difficult in the snow. It very, snows very rarely there. They're not equipped for it. They don't know how to get rid of it. And they're struggling to push the wheelchair. And the guy's freezing in the wheelchair. And all of a sudden, as they're walking, they hits a rock under the snow they can't see. He gets, falls out of the wheelchair into the snow, Hazi. They struggle. They pick him up. They put him back in the wheelchair. Again, they, he's, they're walking. Again, it falls out. Not get the, the guy is in the snow. Rabotai, this man eventually gets to Minyan. But what he doesn't know is that there's a Jerusalem cheder, a school full of children. And the rabbi is teaching the students in class while this man is going to shul shacharit. And he notices the man and he calls the whole class. And all of the boys are sitting there with their faces up against the window, <coughs> watching someone be moser nefesh to go to the knis. In the world to come, each time he fell out of the wheelchair is going to be a gold mine. Because there's 25 kids there that learned that no matter what you go to shul. These are the things, Rabbi Utai and Mordechi, in the end, that turn themselves around. The Ratsui L'Rove Echav, that is maybe not what everyone else wants to do or loves, is excited to do, but you know what's right and you push through. May God give, give us the blessing and the courage to be able uh, to accomplish everything that we need to do, uh, even when it is difficult. And may God grant us as well the... Uh, the ability to see the tashlum for each and every one of those things. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen.